Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we will be considering Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 42. These are the words of God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all of these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah's were, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Our God and Father, we thank you the rich heritage of your word by which through the spirit you build us up you convict us of sin you strengthen us you encourage us you give us joy and we pray now lord by the spirit open up your word to us make us full and fat on the richness of your greatness and the richness of your spirit and the richness of the salvation in christ for we pray in jesus name amen well during the easter season we've been away from matthew for a couple of weeks and we come back in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, which is one of the most misunderstood uh, passages of the New Testament due to the prevalence of apocalyptic language in it. And, of course, we've got a good measure of that in our text. There's a lot here in this text, and we may not have time uh, to cover every single detail. But I do want to come at it from the big picture, and I want to uh, remind ourselves of what we have learned already. And, of course, one of the things that we always have to remember is that this is not the first time in Scripture that God has used apocalyptic language, talking about uh, heaven and earth being shaken, talking about uh, language appearing to be final judgment, gathering together of the elect with the angels, uh, that the sun uh, will uh, not shine, and so forth. All of this is apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is the language of creation and the language of decreation or creational destruction. And with that language, what we learn from Scripture is that God uses that terminology of cosmic creation and decreation to reveal that He is the one 
who is orchestrating ordinary looking human events to bring about through those events his judgment among the nations of the earth. Now we might wonder why would God use such overblown language as the language of creation and the language of cosmic destruction. Well, it makes sense when you think about it. Only God can call into being that which does not exist. Only God can create. And only God can take out of this, uh, uh, existence or destroy that which has been made. And so when God's point is to let us know that ordinary human events are really not ordinary, but he is working through them to bring about his judgment in the affairs of men, it is very appropriate for him to use the language of the things that only he can do, creation and decreation. So we have a very good example of this in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, God speaks of the creation of Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai as the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 51, 15, and 16. I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, speaking, of course, of the crossing of the Red Sea. I have put my words in your mouth, speaking of the giving of the law at Sinai. In order to do what? He tells us that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. So when God brings Israel into existence as his own personal nation, he describes it as the creation of a new cosmos. In Isaiah chapter 13, God speaks of the military conquest of Babylon by the Medes as the end of the world and as a worldwide judgment of mankind. Isaiah 13, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. The stars will not give their light. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shine. Now, in Isaiah 13, just like in our text in uh, Matthew 24, if it were not for the straightforward language in which God tells us what he is really talking about, we would think that he is talking about the final judgment of mankind and the end of the world. But in Isaiah 13, God intersperses with the apocalyptic language, straightforward language, telling us what he's really talking about. And he tells us there that he's really talking about the end of the Babylonian Empire at the hands of the Medes. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, and their bows will dash the young men to pieces. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So God uses the language of decreation, something only he can do, to show that in this ordinary looking, uh, albeit catastrophic human event, one people bringing a military conquest against another people, God is saying these aren't ordinary events. I'm orchestrating this. I'm using people who don't know me. I'm using people who don't believe in me to bring about my judgment in real time in the earth to take down the Babylonian Empire and to raise up the Medo-Persian Empire. And so God uses the language of decreation because it is something only he can do. Now, 
Notice also in Isaiah 13 that God references an earlier example of temporal historical judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says that Babylon will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This is another clue that God is talking about temporal judgment here, not final judgment, because God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a temporal judgment. Now, we see these same features in our text from Matthew chapter 24. So with passages involving apocalyptic language, we want to interpret the apocalyptic language apocalyptically and the straightforward language straightforwardly. Now, what does it mean to interpret apocalyptic language apocalyptically? It means to understand how God uses the language. It means to interpret Scripture by Scripture. It means to go back to the Old Testament, look at the examples of when God used this kind of language before and what he meant by that. And then we interpret the New Testament when it uses the same kind of language in the same way. So, God uses apocalyptic language to tell us he is intervening in human events in order to use those events to bring about his judgment in the earth, usually with the rise or the fall of a city or a people or a nation. God does not use apocalyptic language to tell us exactly what, when, or how. Let me say that again. God does not use apocalyptic language to tell us exactly what, when, or how. God typically uses straightforward language to tell us those things. This is how God spoke in the Old Testament. And Jesus here in the Olivet Discourse is assuming that his disciples, as good Hebrews schooled in the Old Testament, will interpret his words accordingly. So our text in Matthew 24 has many of the features of Isaiah chapter 13, which is one of the prime examples from the Old Testament of apocalyptic language. And our text in Matthew 24 has a mix, a mix of apocalyptic language and straightforward language. And as with Isaiah 13, if we focus in exclusively on the apocalyptic language instead of the straightforward language to determine the what, the when, and the how, we will conclude that Jesus is talking about the final judgment of mankind and the end of the world. For after all, he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. He will send his angels with the sound of the great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Sounds very much like he is talking about the final judgment and the end of the world. But if we let the apocalyptic language tell us what it is intended to tell us, that God is intervening in human events to use those events to bring about his judgment with regard to some city or people or nation. And if we let the straightforward language tell us what it is intended to tell us, the what, when, and how, then we will see that Jesus is talking about himself as the enthroned Christ, bringing about his divine judgment on apostate Israel in the first century. There is a world that is coming to, the, to an end, but it is not the space-time universe. It is the cosmos, the world of Old Testament Israel, who has now finally rejected her Messiah. Let's look at the what. Jesus tells us 
through straightforward language that it will be a temporal judgment in which God will destroy the wicked and preserve the righteous. And so in that sense, it is a precursor or a foreshadow of the final judgment on the last day, for that is what God will do at that time. Notice verse 37 and 38. As the days of Noah were, so also will be uh, the coming of the Son of Man. In the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Noah's flood was a temporal judgment. It was not the final judgment on the last day when Christ will judge the secrets of every single heart. So that is the what? It is a temporal judgment, just like Noah's flood was a temporal judgment. What about the when? Jesus says that it will be during the first century. Verse 34, Assuredly, I tell you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He also tells them that the exact day and hour are unknown, except to the Father, verse 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, except the Father. And thirdly, he tells them that even though, he says it's going to happen in this generation, but the exact day or an hour are only known to the Father, but the disciples are expected to discern when the day is upon them so that they can flee. Earlier in Matthew 24, you remember that Jesus said, you be ready to flee to the mountains. So the disciples are expected to watch and to discern. Verses 32 and 33, says like a fig tree putting forth leaves. You know summer is coming. When you see all these things, all the things that he has been describing, know that it is near at the door. Now, the coming of the Son of Man is a quote from the Old Testament vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And in that vision, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man, like the Son of Man. Remember, Son of Man was God's name for Ezekiel, who was uh, Daniel's contemporary. Ezekiel was a priest whom God called as a prophet. And now Daniel sees one like the Son of Man, a prophet, priest, becoming king. He sees him coming on the clouds, before the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom over all peoples and nations of the earth, a kingdom that will last forever. So the coming of the Son of Man refers in the first instance to Jesus' ascension to the Father and his enthronement in heaven. When we hear about the coming of the Lord or the coming of the Son of Man, we always assume that it is talking about a coming to earth. But the primary coming involved in Daniel chapter 7, the coming of the Son of Man, is not a coming to earth at all. It is a coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days in heaven to be enthroned and to receive the kingdom. So any comings of the Lord Jesus on earth, any visitations of judgment by the Lord Jesus on the earth are a result of the preeminent coming that he had to heaven when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven in verse 30. Now there's an ambiguity here in the Greek. It's not clear whether it is the sign that is in heaven or whether it is the Son of Man 
who is in heaven, and I think it is referring to the Son of Man who is in heaven. It is not the sign in heaven of the Son of Man. It is the sign of the Son of Man who is in heaven. And it refers to the sign or the proof that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is enthroned there over all peoples and nations. It is a sign that Jesus is the one Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 and that he has now come on the clouds to the Father and received power and authority over all the earth and all peoples everywhere. Now, we cannot see Jesus there, so the world needs a sign on the earth to prove that Jesus' prophecies and promises have come true. He is in heaven. We cannot see the Son of Man. He is in heaven enthroned there, but we can't see that. So we need on the earth a sign that that has occurred. The sign that Jesus promised was that during that very generation, Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by the armies of Rome. That is the sign of the Son of Man. And that is confirmed by Revelation chapter 12, which is a description of Jesus' ascension. There Jesus is described as the male child who was born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And there it says that he was caught up to the throne of God. That's another description of the ascension. Again, we cannot see him on his throne, but we can see the rod of iron that he rules with because we see the rod of iron on the earth. And the first demonstration of Jesus' rod of iron was the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. That was the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. That's what people could see, and that's what Jesus promised them would occur, and that would be the proof that he truly was the Son of God, that he was a true prophet of God, that God has raised him from the dead, that God has exalted him to the right hand, his right hand, given him the kingdom, and given him all power and authority. Now, all the tribes of Israel saw this, and they mourned, verse 30. That's what verse 30 is talking about when it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The word for earth here, the Greek word, also means land. There's an ambiguity. Is it talking about the whole earth, or is it talking about a particular land? It was often used of the land of Israel in the Septuagint. Now, you have to remember that in Old Testament typology, Israel, the nation of Israel, pictures regenerate, regenerate humanity, and therefore true, restored humanity. The Gentiles picture unregenerate, fallen humanity, and therefore humanity that has been dehumanized to the level of being beasts. So Israel was pictured as being the creatures or the people of the land, because mankind was made for the land. Okay? And so uh, that's Israel as always the people of the land. And the Gentiles were pictured as creatures of the dark, untamed, unruly sea. It's dark, it's deep. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. So the Gentiles are the peoples of the sea, and Israel are the peoples of the land. And that typology is in the background of verse 30 in the reference to the tribes of the earth or the land. It was Israel that was being judged in 70 AD, not the whole world. It's the tribes of Israel. And the mourning here is not a mourning of repentance, but a mourning when they see the woe that is coming upon them as the armies of Rome has Jerusalem 
under siege, and it becomes apparent that their war for independence is not going to succeed. The Romans are going to starve them out, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. It's interesting that um, when the armies uh, of Rome actually broke through the city gates and got into the city, the Roman generals uh, did not want the temple destroyed because it was such a magnificent wonder of the ancient world. It's just uh, breathtaking. The general wanted to preserve the temple, just wants to get rid of the rebels. But Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. So whose will is going to be done? The Roman general or Jesus? Well, the troops, when they got in there, had been such a long war and siege, they just went crazy. They went crazy, and they just drug it down. They drug stone from stone, and they burned the whole, time, the whole thing so that Jesus' prophecies in detail were fulfilled. Now, gathering the elect by angels in verse 31 refers to Jesus ensuring that his disciples got out of Jerusalem to safety so that they did not get caught up in the destruction. Remember, angel to us means a heavenly being. Angel in, uh, in, in the Greek was a common everyday word that simply meant messenger. It could refer to anyone, earthly or human or, or heavenly, anyone sent by God on an errand or a mission, whether they knew that they were being sent on a mission by God or not. It didn't matter. If God was sending them to accomplish something, they were God's messenger or an angel. Now, Noah was a messenger of God in the time of the flood, and he was human. The two messengers sent to Sodom and Gomorrah were heavenly beings, but their mission was to get Lot and his family out and to destroy the cities. So they were God's messengers in function, uh, not simply in being. And so uh, we have Jesus in the first part of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, when he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, writing to the angels of the churches. Well, that's almost certainly referring to the pastors of those churches because this is a message these people are supposed to get. And so the pastors are referred to as the angels. That doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're angelic in the sense that they don't have a fallen nature. What it means is they are the messengers. They are to carry Jesus' message. So whether Jesus here is referring to human or heavenly messengers in our text or both, he is saying that he is going to get his disciples, his chosen ones, out so that they are not carried away in the destruction. That's what God did with Noah. That's what God did with Lot. He got them out so they were not carried away in the destruction, and then they remained to live on to inherit the earth. So Jesus tells his disciples to watch in verse 42 and to read the signs in verse 33 precisely because this is a temporal judgment he is talking about. If they don't watch and read the signs, they will be caught up in the destruction. Now, think about this. If Jesus was talking about the final judgment here, the day of the resurrection unto life or unto damnation, it would make no sense for Jesus to tell his disciples to watch and read the signs because everybody will participate on the last day. Everybody will participate, and all believers who have ever lived will be resurrected unto eternal life. And all the unbelievers who have ever lived will be resurrected unto damnation. There is no chance of missing that event. So when the Bible speaks unmistakably on the last day, about the last day, one of the keys is that there are no time frames given 
and no commands to watch and anticipate. 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter about the resurrection. It talks about the final judgment unmistakably. It goes all the way from the resurrection of Jesus to the final resurrection on the last day, the day of the final judgment. And there's not one word in there about watch. Read the signs. Anticipate. There's nothing of that language in there. In Acts chapter 2, when the disciples watched Jesus go up and a cloud receive him into heaven. And we know what happens after that. The same cloud brings him into heaven before the Ancient of Days where he is enthroned. We know what happens, okay? They see him go up into a cloud. And then angels, messengers, appear to the disciples. And what do they say? Why are you looking up? Why are you watching? He's going to return just as you saw him go. And there he's talking about Jesus' return on the last day. So, the, so what the angels tell the disciples is not, watch. They don't say, yes, keep watching. Keep reading signs. Keep anticipating. No, the angels say, why are you watching? Why are you watching? He's going to come back just as he went. It's not something you need to watch for. But in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about a temporal historical judgment that's going to happen in the first century. For that, they need to watch. For that, they need to read the signs. If they don't, they're going to get caught up in the destruction, which is not Jesus' will. And by saying that he's going to send his messengers, what he is saying is whether it's human messengers, whether it's angelic or heavenly messengers, Jesus' will and Jesus is to ensure that his believers get out and do not come under this destruction of Jerusalem. But that is something that the believers need to participate in. Noah had to participate. God's will was to get Noah and his family out. But Noah had to do something. They had to build an ark, and he needed to get on it at the right time. God's will was that Lot and his family be spared and get out from the destruction coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot and his family had to do something. They had to listen to the messengers, and they had to leave. And that is the same thing here. Jesus wants to ensure not one of his believers comes under this destruction of Jerusalem. Not one single one. But they have to do something. They have to watch. They have to read the signs. They have to be ready. And when the abomination of desolation appears, he says already, which Luke identifies with Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, he says, flee to the mountains. And we know from the historical accounts that there was a, a fortress uh, about 40 miles from Jerusalem up in the mountains. Uh, I think it was called Pella. And we know that many of the Christian disciples, that's exactly where they went. They did exactly what Jesus said. They fled to the mountains and they got out of the destruction. So, this passage, when we interpret the apocalyptic in light of the straightforward instead of the underway around, it makes complete sense. But it does not square at all with the outlook of the modern evangelical church. I was, last week, I happened to catch part of the O'Reilly Factor, <clears throat> and on there was a very prominent pastor, evangelical pastor, from one of the largest evangelical churches in America. I'm not going to give his name, I'm not going to give the church's name, because this is a very good Christian man 
who stands for Jesus. And this church is a very good church that stands for Jesus. Um, this man has probably done a lot more for Jesus and a lot more for the kingdom than I have. And their church has probably done a lot more than our church. So the last thing I want to do is to be throwing rocks or to come across as smug or critical or condescending. That's not my purpose at all. I, I stand with this man. We stand with his church on a, on a whole host of issues. This is a man who loves Jesus. This is a man who Satan knows. I don't know if he knows me, but he knows this guy. Okay? So, my hat's off to this, to this pastor and to his church. But, O'Reilly was asking him, he said, so you have recently criticized President Obama for some of his policies, saying basically that they are uh, increasing the power of the federal government too much, bringing people into too much uh, uh, dependence and everything, something that I definitely agree with, and I think that the church needs to be uh, sounding that uh, warning. But he, but he said, so what do you think you know, how do you think this is happening, or why do you think this is happening, and so forth. And this is what the pastor said. Well, there's going to be a one-world dictator who's going to arise. And, of course, he's talking about this is the modern dispensational expectation of the Antichrist who's going to arise, and there's going to be a one-world government and one-world um, dictator. He says, now, it's not President Obama, but he's preparing the way. Now, there have been so many of these wrong predictions, so many dates, so many speculations about the Antichrist and so forth, in spite of the fact that the Apostle John clearly says in 1 John, he said, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, but I tell you that even now many Antichrists have arisen. And he says that the spirit of Antichrist is the one who denies Jesus has come in the flesh. And he says, by the fact that many have already arisen from within the church and left us, he says, we know, little children, that it is the last hour. Now, this is the same kind of language Jesus is talking about. John is doing what Jesus said. John is watching. God, John is reading the signs. And he tells them in the first century at that point, he says, he doesn't even say, hey, it's the last day. He says, it's the last hour. It's right on us. Okay? But we push all of that aside. We use the apocalyptic language. We interpret it straightforwardly. We interpret the straightforward language of Jesus metaphorically. And we assume that all of these events lie in our future, that we are supposed to be watching for these things. Instead of saying something like, well, you know, the whole story of the Bible is the story from slavery to freedom. And there is no real freedom without being united to God and following his word through Christ. And what we see that when God brings freedom in the Bible... He does not bring them into some newfound slavery through their dependence to some kind of a temporal tyrant. God, if Christ makes you free, you are free indeed. And so he sets people free. And his freedom spiritually is seen through in other kinds of freedom. He could have said that. But he goes into the whole dispensational expectation of the end times and the Antichrist and so forth. Now, this is a good evangelical man. If we are ever standing in line waiting to die for the faith, this man will be there with us. 
and so will much of his church. But it does detract from the message when embarrassingly this kind of stuff keeps coming up, and of course it never comes true because it's not applying to our time. It happened 2,000 years ago in detail. And so anyway, it is important because it affects the outlook of the church. It affects our hope. It affects our faith. It affects the way we live. It affects the way we speak and the way we share the gospel. So the modern evangelical church has a completely reversed kind of expectation and hope from what we see here in this passage. The modern evangelical church teaches that believers are going to be raptured out. And the unbelievers are going to be left behind. Have you heard those words? Left behind on the earth. And so we look at verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And the modern evangelical church says that the believer is the one who is taken and raptured out of the world. Yanked out. And the unbelievers are the ones who are left on the earth. But we see here that Jesus is teaching the exact opposite. Jesus expressly says it will be like the days of Noah. As the days of Noah were, verse 37, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then in case we missed it, he says it again. Verses 38 and 39, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He says it twice. In the days of Noah with a great flood, let me ask you this question. Who was left behind and who was taken away? The unbelievers were taken away. The believers were left behind to inherit the earth and to further the righteous will of God. That's the same thing Jesus is saying here. Two men are in the field. One will be taken in judgment and the other will be left preserved. Two women will be grinding. One will be taken away in judgment. The other will be left because she is preserved. She's a believer. The one taken is the unbeliever. The one left behind is the believer to live on for Christ and his kingdom. And so Jesus tells his disciples that they are to watch, watch for the signs so they can know when this day is upon them. The fact that Jesus commands them to watch, to be ready, to discern, again, is another indication that Jesus is referring to temporal judgment, not final judgment on the last day. So the modern church has a completely reversed kind of expectation and hope. It is hoping and waiting to be taken away, to be taken out, to be evacuated from the earth so that the earth is left for the unbelievers and the wicked. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. That is the opposite effect of God's temporal judgments in the earth. The effect of God's temporal judgments in the earth is to take the unbelievers away in judgment and to leave his people preserved to inherit the earth. So, this is in complete keeping with God's promises in the Old Testament as well as his promises in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 37, one example, there's many other, but Psalm 37, verse 11, God is telling his people, be faithful, trust in me, 
Don't get distressed when you see the unrighteous flourishing. Trust in me. Be faithful. Walk with me. And he tells them this. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's the promise. The meek, the believers, those who are submissive to God, they will inherit not heaven. Oh, yes, we get heaven too. But they will inherit the earth. And that is the promise which Jesus quoted and reiterated to his disciples in the Beatitudes. Remember, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. The kingdom of God is not concerned with heaven. The kingdom of God is concerned with the earth. The kingdom of God is about inheriting a righteous earth by righteous people. That is the pattern of the reigning Christ. That is the pattern of the kingdom. And that is the way Jesus wants us to think. He doesn't want us waiting around to be evacuated. It's hard to build for the long term. It's hard to culture build. It's hard to do things that are intended to last when we believe that our destiny is to be evacuated and taken out. It just undercuts that. Jesus tells us to have a long-term faith that is very much planted here on the ground. Heaven is involved because that's the origin of the kingdom. That's where the power of the kingdom comes up. But the direction of the kingdom is from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. That is to be our way of thinking. That is to be the way we hope. That is to dictate the way that we pray. And that is to govern the way that we live. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.